Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today we have Justin Simmons, Ryan Doherty, Thomas Lesage, Tom Delaney, and Tony Gentile in studio. All of these men have many things in common. They're all police officers. At one time, they all served together on the same police department, and they are all suicide loss survivors of a first responder. On October 29th, it will be the five-year anniversary of Sergeant Alex Kokoros, who served in the town of Abington, Mass., and who also worked alongside the men that are here with us today. Alex's death impacted them immediately, and still does today. They are here today to pay tribute to Alex and to share it with you, our listeners. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Please take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience. Hello there. I'm uh, Justin Simmons. Uh, Good evening. My name is uh, Thomas Lesage, and uh, I am uh, currently a Weymouth police officer. I served with uh, Alex for two years. He was my uh, midnight uh, shift supervisor, um, and yeah, that's me. My name's Ryan Darty. I've served with Alex his entire career in Abington, and I'm proud to say that he was a very close friend of mine. Tony Gentile. Served on the department for about 20 years in Abington, several years with Alex. How's it going? I'm uh, Tom Delaney. I'm uh, currently on Brockton PD. Uh, I worked with Alex uh, over at Abington prior to uh, going there. Um, I consider him a very close friend, and I'm happy that we're here today. And I appreciate Linda and Jay uh, inviting us. Uh, Once again, I want to thank you gentlemen for joining us today. And I suppose we'll start by talking about who Alex was and and who he was to all of you uh, as a friend, as a coworker. Um, what your relationship was when you think about that, when you think about Alex, what comes to mind, whether it's, you know, memories, something that, that represents your friendship, whatever you want to or are comfortable sharing. Who was Alex to you? Anybody that wants to go. Well, I'll, I'll certainly speak. Um, Alex was one of my best friends in the department there. Um, we would constantly be joking around, <laughs> sending each other memes and, uh, you know, just having fun throughout the day. Um, you know, one of the things that I always look back upon is, you know, having uh, lunch together and, uh, you know, kind of sharing together our lives and experiences. Uh, him, you know, telling us, telling me about his family um, and feeling really connected, uh, especially to his family from that. Um, I, I can't say that, you know, he was 
kind of a devilish individual. <laughs> it uh, sure was. <laughs> well, uh, very humorous, and I think that was a great compliment to him. Describe describe that devilish. What does that mean? Get into it. Don't be holding back now. I'll go ahead. I would say his laughter. That's one thing I remember. I can hear his laughter like I heard his laughter 10 minutes ago. Is His laugh, we always were laughing, and we always were having a good time with each other. Yeah. Justin, what was the devilish like? Well, <laughs> like you said, uh, you know, he'd come here in the cafe mm. and, uh, you know, start going right behind the counter. Yeah. Coffees and everything else. Yeah, he was sassy. <laughs> he sure was sassy. Very, very much so. We talked about, just for the listeners to, to understand what, what we were talking about off air, um, Justin and, and the guys came in and I offered them a coffee. Um, we're here at the cafe recording uh, the interview. And, um, you know, Justin came right in behind the counter and started making his own coffee. And I was like, oh, that's what Alex used to do. Um, come right in. And I used to yell at him because it was in the middle of our busy day. And he was just standing there like a goof, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he'd be cracking up laughing at me. So, yeah, that was uh, his sort of thing. And he would just laugh, like laugh at you. Um, so I'm sure that that's sort of stuff that he would do to wind each other up during the day. Or... Um I mean, that he has numerous experiences over at the courthouse, but when he uh, he crashed one of the cruisers, that was a, <laughs> that was a day. <laughs> do you guys, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Do you guys remember that? <laughs> so just uh, as Justin was saying, Alex was the court prosecutor for a while, did a phenomenal job, made a lot of great connections over the courthouse, lots of close friends over at the Brockton District Court. But he's doing a prisoner transport, and the way the Brockton District Court is set up, their lockup is below ground level in the basement. So there's a very long, narrow ramp that it's an L shape, so you have to pull in, angle your cruiser just the right way, back all the way down the ramp. That's probably 100, 150 feet long. They open up these doors that look like they've been there since the courthouse opened, however many decades ago. And when he was backing the cruiser down, the line of sight's not really that good. He accidentally backed into the door as it was either opening or closing, causing damage to the door, damage to the cruiser. <laughs> and the folks at the courthouse, as a little joke, they made a framed picture of the damage to the cruiser and damage to the door and presented <laughs> to Alex as a gift, which he proudly displayed in his office for a long time after that. Oh, my God, that is so fun. I, see, this is the things that, you know, I love to hear about that I, I wouldn't know of, right? Um, but just out of your recollection of, of how fun it was to be around him, um, he was a fun guy. He was very lighthearted um, and always there, right, wa- having a bit of a laugh with everybody. Tom, you want to chime in there? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely have to chime in with a couple stories here because um, Alex, Alex would uh, – in, in part, in a kind of like a department-wide joke where this big stuffed bear would uh, make its way into people's personal cars when they were leaving. And uh, a lot of us work like overnights or nights and stuff. So, you know, driving home and then all of a sudden you see this uh, like five-foot, six-foot stuffed bear in the back <laughs> of your seat, you know, after a long, long shift. And, uh, yeah, and then you have to f- figure out where you were going to do with it and put it there. And uh, I think I was the victim of Alex's uh, humor a couple times, and he he got me pretty good. He, uh, he's he's probably the only person who's really snuck up on me and played a pretty pretty good joke on me like that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I, I can't remember the specifics, like I said, because it happened so many times. So, 
Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it. I, I see Justin over there smiling because I know I know he he had it a couple times as well. Yeah, <laughs> I th- I think there was one where uh, he stuck that uh, it's a big like life size teddy bear in the back of the cruiser, and someone got called uh, to make an arrest. And show up on scene, <laughs> and in the back was the teddy bear. So very quickly, uh, you know, another car came up there and grabbed the bear out of that one and stuck in a different car before <laughs> any, before anyone knew. But definitely, uh, definitely, Alex playing uh, pranks around the station and, and bringing a little life to everything. Yeah. So when the bear wasn't in in, in someone's cruiser or someone's personal car on the way home, where did it? Where was its home? In his office? It was planning its next enterprise to find it into another vehicle. <laughs> Usually yeah. ended up in the back of somebody's pickup truck yeah. or something like that when they're driving home. No way. And you would have to explain it to either your family that when you go home, yeah, I have oh, this yeah. bear today. I can't, I can't even remember. Does anybody have a story about what happened with that bear? Or? No? So yeah, you don't want to talk about it. Oh my God, um, guys, thank you so much for I mean sharing and those things. And I know there's so many more stories, right, that you will all recollect. Um, you know, as maybe the you know our conversations go into. Um, I just want to start to get into it a little bit, if you, if you don't mind. I want to get in. We lost Alex, right? Um, Alex is my stepson. And um, these gentlemen all here tonight have become our family friends. Um, every you know birthday, every anniversary, every holiday, um, our family is always remembered by you guys, um, especially you there in the middle, Mr. Ryan. Um, and um, it, we appreciate you. And I think the it's it's a, it's a, it's an anniversary. It's a five year anniversary. I can't believe it's been five years that he's gone. It just feels like yesterday. And and I'm sure it feels like yesterday for you too. So what I want to sort of get in and talk to you about, um, we are Hopi on the badge. So we we talk about mental health and, and emotional struggles or challenges um, in, in first response and how you guys sort of don't share stuff down, you know, what you're feeling, um, you know, through your, throughout your career. And um, and that you have a hard time sort of sharing that with your families, with your siblings, and also with your peers, um, either for fear of losing your job. Um, you know, I've heard sort of you know many many different ways of describing that, where they call it like being put on the rubber gun squad a long time ago, um, or put on the desk, or whatever that might be, um, being ridiculed, um, all of that. You know, shame and stigma like that. Sometimes it's self-imposed stigma, or just stigma that have you adopt you have adopted um, from your department that you entered um, into, um, based on maybe your administration not being supportive um, of the men and women in your department. So you lost Alex five years ago um, in the department. Um, let's go back there. What was that like um, for you? That day, take us back to that day, or even before, if you leading up to Alex's death on October 29th. If you, any of you want to join in, who's joining in here first? Well, I, Justin, I, this is Justin. Yeah, <coughs> I think I can um, definitely speak to the days prior, because, um, like I said, we we would normally get lunch and uh, you know kind of goof off a little bit, um, and we would share 
kind of the stressors in our lives that are taking place and share, you know, some of the, you know, more intimate details that were, you know, taking place personally in our lives and everything else. Um, and, you know, I can remember sitting at uh, a cafe in town with him um, over, you know, um, over a meal. And, you know, one of the things as we were discussing uh, you know, various personal matters is that, uh, uh, you know, I could feel the conversation kind of turn. And I sat there just wanting to ask him um, and just wanted to, to ask him because um, I kind of felt that that was um, in his mind or, in, in, you know, almost like you can – read it on his face. Um, but the thing about it, uh, to me, was that he was overwhelmingly calm, um, you know, just discussing every, you know, everything openly. And, um, you know, I had run through my head, you know, constantly, like, you know, what, you know, you know, what should, you know, what should I have done? Um, I think, you know, for me, a, a lot of that was a lot of guilt, um, that I had from that conversation having with him and sitting across from him and him um, explaining the things that are going on with him and being very calm about it. Um, you know, I, I recognize some of these things that I should have just asked him, mm. you know, flat out. And I think that he would have been honest with me to give me that answer. Yeah. Um, you know, so I sit there all the time thinking about that as a survivor of of this yeah. uh, constantly yeah. um what shift did you did you feel well i mean i i i, I feel as though you know had i asked him he w- would have told me you have to ask him what if i asked him if this if suicide was on his mind mm-hmm. he would have told you he would have told me okay you had a lot of guilt after that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not a day goes by that I don't think about that. You know, and it's interesting because, like, it wasn't overtly mentioned. You know, he didn't overtly say this, but it was just in his eyes, in his face. He was very calm, very. Um, you know, it's almost like it was a relief. It was a relief. He had made up his mind. He had made up his mind, and he was. Um, plan, you know, his 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 intention was known, you know, it was made. Mm. And, you know, I sit there and I think about, you know, when I was in that position, you know, how, if I had acted, what would have happened to him professionally? Um, what do you mean if you had active, acted? Well, if, you, if I had acted and professionally his his career may have ended mm-hmm. and I would have been taking, you know, something that is an identity to him, mm-hmm. you know, someone who is a great cop and taking that from him and how unfair that would be. Yeah. Um, how unfair that is to, you know, his, his, his own, own survival, um, you know, and you know how he, um, 
I mean, how he, I mean, he support a lot of individuals. Yeah. And so taking that away from him. And so that's kind of an ethical dilemma that you face, but I uh, wish he was still here. Yeah, so. me too. Um, there is, you know, I just want to, can I just have to go back in with Justin for a second? Um There's nothing that you, I just want to assure you as a, a family member that there's nothing that you would have been able to do other than ask the question. Um, and who knows whether he would have been honest, but you feel he might have said yes and it might have been a different story then. But at the same time, um, he had his mind made up. Yeah. Um, and, and there's nothing that you or I or anybody have done about that um that's why he felt um that he needed to do was to end his pain um that he was going through um i know ryan wants to chime in here but i just wanted to say that to you personally i absolutely appreciate all those words that you've said i mean being part of your family here and everything has meant everything to me going through what i've struggled being yeah part of alex yeah a suicide loss survivor I want to get in. I'm, I am going to get back to, but I know the other guys want to chime in. But I, I do want to get back into, you know, all of you have gone through this experience together. But we're all different. We're all unique, and we're all going to experience it differently, right? Um, and how we're able to handle things. Um, so I want to start to go through that with you guys, um, but also get into collectively, like what support you got and what was available to you afterwards. So. Um, just jump in yeah what he said yeah um, I, I feel I feel like that's that's a lot of survivors um, have that feeling yeah you know hindsight's 2020 you come back and and you start looking at it and you start saying oh I could have done this I could have done this I could have done this and then that's where you get into the OODA loop and you start doing it over and over and over again and then you just start beating yourself down um, <clears throat> I know I, I think about it all the time I always I always think about our last conversations our last text messages our last everything our last our last time together uh, me, me and Alex spent a lot of uh, like crucial life moments together where like we were we were doing certain things I was union president he was union vice president um, and we were brand new at this and we were learning things and doing and doing uh kind of like feeding off each other to try to try to be better at what we could do um, in in that in that moment when I look back I now have all this knowledge after the fact of of PTSD suicide, um, depression, everything. I, I didn't know this before Alex's stuff. I, I had some knowledge, nowhere close to what I have, have learned over the past five years. Wow. Um, so as you get older, it almost hurts a little more because you start gaining this knowledge and you start, you start understanding it, understanding it, understanding it. And I, I don't think that's fair on ourselves. We, yeah. were, we were young at the time. We, di- we, we didn't know. We were cops. We, we thought... We thought, you know, oh, well, I feel the same way, you know. I mean, that's that's kind of like the way, like I kind of like looked at it, like, and I know everybody else felt the same way. We all we all felt extremely, you know, sad in the place that we were. We used to talk every every day about it, and that's how we kind of helped helped each other through it was talking with your friends, and a lot of the conversations that I had were at, with Alex was that I, I would give him things back. Maybe he might have saw signs in me as well if uh, yeah. if we were having conversations like that. And uh, I, I don't think it's fair for 
um, the people who are still here to beat themselves up as you learn more and more about about this unfortunate um, situation that families, friends, and everybody else are put into. Yeah. Um, I think I think it hurts more because you feel like you could have done something if you had that knowledge, which is why these podcasts and and all the outreach mental health stuff are great because it is going to help. It's going to help somebody. It's yeah. going it, it, to along the line it will and um and that's great. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree with you Tom. You know, f- absolutely 100% um if I if I started can relate with you, you said you're young. We didn't know. I didn't know any of this stuff. I learned so much more about mental health and emotional um, stress, you know, on the job in the past five years since losing Alex, and and here you were a police officer after going through the academy, right? And um, you know, you didn't know about that stuff, but you can't unknow what you know now. Yeah. Same way I I I'm the same way too, right? And and that's out of what drives me and to using that knowledge now that what I know um, that there's so many first responders who are struggling and there's such a stigma within departments and you know it's my purpose our purpose right to to make it easier for first responders to be able to talk and realize that you are strong and you are a leader when you seek help for what you're going through and what you see every day, because it's not normal. Yeah, the the, the yeah. change that you see is is unbelievable. So it's it's without a doubt. Departments are are well put together to be able to take care of each other. I know I know at Brockton we put together a great peer support group, and uh, and we've been doing good things so far. Yeah, I I, I agree with that as well. I mean, um, you know, being the position I am now, recognizing um, you know the signs, and um, you know going back and, and now feeling a little bit more prepared as to what to do in that circumstance. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is, is really, um, changed, you know, and, um, especially where we work as well. Yeah. Yeah, You, you loved your buddy. So don't, don't worry. All right. Ryan, you want to chime in there? I'll just share Justin's sentiment. I've lived with a tremendous amount of guilt after, after losing. Alex, the weeks before Alex's death, I can still remember when the last time I saw him face to face. My last, my last text message with him, like I knew he was, he was struggling with his professional, the issues he was having at work, the issues he was having at home, and I really rake myself over the coals after after that after his loss because. What does that mean, raking yourself over the coals? A lot of guilt blame myself like Justin said like I I should I felt like I, I should have seen something I could I have done something differently could I have said something to him is there something that I should have noticed and a big part of that was because at that time I was the department's suicide prevention instructor and I was a mental health first aid instructor mm-hmm. and so after after Alex's death I'm like I'm never I can never do any of that stuff ever again because I felt like I failed yeah and like I felt like I failed Alex and uh, like I really beat myself up over for a very long time. But I remember thinking, mm. should I have noticed? Uh, not should I? Like I felt I should have, like I should have seen something. Um, I should have been there more, or like I felt like I should have done something else. I f- I should have, not could I have it, but I was like, 
it was, and I knew logically in my mind, it was, I was thinking of a little cartoon where you have the angel on one side, the devil on the other side. Mm. I had the, I had the two different voices in my head. Like, should I, could I going down that, going down that, that black hole? Like I, it, it was more like a, a tornado in my head of the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. But then I also had the logical part of my mind, like, no, get yourself out of this. You, there's nothing that you could have done mm-hmm. differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I personally also had those same thoughts. You know, there was many nights Alex would come home from work. He was living with us, right? And and he would come home when he was home. And we, would, myself and himself specifically, would sit out on the deck in, in the dark, you know, at nighttime. And, um, you know, have these conversations, um, never about suicide, but about what he was going through and what he was feeling. And... Um, and he was very open in sharing those he things, was. right? Obvi- obviously, with you guys too, right? So, um, he was very open in sharing what he was feeling. Um, started like looking for help or guidance, and uh, and I did guide him in certain directions that he wanted to go in as far as resources, right, for his personal stuff that was going on in his life. Um, so yeah, like like looking back, like in the beginning, um, you know, myself and Jay have spoke about this many times before, you know, the what ifs, right? Those what the what if, why the what ifs, why didn't I see it? Why didn't he tell me? Um, why didn't he say it to me? Why didn't he say he was struggling this bad that he was in so much pain um, that he didn't feel worthy of being here with us or? Or did he feel a burden, so much of a burden that he just wanted to end his life and, and be gone? Or maybe other people's lives would be better off without him in it. Um, so all those things, um, you know, would go through my head, um, you know, from our co- own personal conversations together. And, um, you know, it always came back to the, to the question of me asking myself, why didn't he tell me? Why didn't he talk to me? I could have been able to help him I would have been able to help him and um and he didn't so he let us in all in so far mm-hmm. but then held us back uh, at a distance also and um you know there was for me I don't know whether you experienced it or not but I had a lot of anger um I was mad at him for for quite a while um mad at him for those reasons that I just shared um, why didn't he talk to me? Just why didn't he talk to me? Um, he was so open about everything else. Why didn't he talk to me about this? Um, and um, and again, I, I mean, I was not trained in, in that area to notice those signs. But, you know, if someone is struggling that bad, um, you know, you feel that you would you would want to. You know, he was struggling, but he also seemed as if he had it together, like... I'm just going to get through each day. Yeah, he did. Tom is nodding his head at me, right? Yeah, I'm just nodding my head specifically, you know, what you were saying about, like, it seemed like he actually, like, had it together because briefly, um, as I previously discussed when I was uh, hosted on your show before, yeah, is that, um, you know, I was a very young officer. I was only on for two years at the time, so Alex was a leader to me because he had newly been promoted. He was highly involved in the Alice training, the which is the active shooter prevention training and all that stuff. Um, he was a court prosecutor. He was a sergeant. So he was heavily involved with 
all sorts of things within the police department. And uh, for me, I looked at, I looked up to Alex because I, he was a leader to me. Mm-hmm. So as soon as he took over like the split shift or the night shift shift, I remember he like got his, all his gold, you know, his gold equipment, his chevrons, his gold badge and everything like that. He had a freshly, you know, nice haircut. I think that he was like seeing a new girlfriend or something like that at the same time. I was yeah. like, <laughs> I was like, man, Sarge, like, I was like, I'm telling you, man, you just, you got it. You look like you got it all together and all that stuff. And I didn't know <laughs> did. him well enough to like, I wasn't involved in, you know, his personal life, but I knew he had some things going on, yeah. but I remember him showing up for shifts and like he, like, it was almost like he like turned into a leaf for a, a small portion of the time i was like i think that like you know he i was like you got it sarge you got it Mm. he was a rock star and he was a wealth he was absolute wealth of knowledge i remember him i'd be all nervous for court and everything like that and i remember he'd be like he'd sit me down at roll call he'd be like just give me this just give me this and he'd like take my uh like court paperwork and everything and he would highlight line by line like hey this is the things that you need to know this is when you can reference it um, you know, your paperwork, this is when you can, you know, X, Y, and Z and all that stuff. So like I heavily leaned on him with, I hadn't, you know, very little experience, um, you know, at my age, but leaning on him as that resource of knowledge was huge for me yeah. as a, um, you know, as a young patrolman. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Jay, you want to chime in? Yeah, I will. I, um, I think we're kind of hitting on something that's really important just in terms of of the cultural conversation everybody seems to be talking about knowledge gained um you know since since uh alex was lost and since um it sounds like also as a culture we talk about stigma a lot on this podcast an awful lot and and how that plays into when a first responder is suffering um you know those barriers to reaching out and asking for help because that's really what it takes it takes person that's going through it um to be able to say something and and a lot of those reasons make sense that have come up right the job becomes a part of your identity um you know can it be impacted negatively and um i mean i think overcoming those things is is how we overcome that that stigma you know imagine if we approached uh mental health in this culture the way that we do physical fitness right if if it was embraced like that somebody goes on a fitness journey they're posting selfies and their new gear and you know talking about the gains uh that they made and and one day you know i i hope because that's what we're going to see real change and in, in lives saved when when we get to a place of of accepting uh what it does not just for the individuals but for the culture um, you know, when when those types of efforts are respected and applauded, you know, be posting selfies with mindful hoodies talking about how zen ya, um, and and you know that's some difference will be made. I, th- I think a lot of really important things were just shared, and it sounds like you guys are all um, doing really important and meaningful things just by carrying that message forward um, by by. You know, shedding light on the importance of of mental health, removing the stigma and and the shame, um, and I applaud you all, gentlemen. Does anybody else have anything that they want to share about um, about their relationship with Alex um, before he died, or should we move on to talk more about the uh, you know about the grief and the aftermath and all of that? But I don't want to 
anybody has anything they want to talk about in this segment, I, please I do. We could, go, we could probably go hours talking about his charisma and, and yeah, how, like how he is. You know, you'd be sitting here laughing. We would absolutely I mean, would, love that. Yeah, yeah with, with, without a doubt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I just want to mention that he was he was just a great cop all around. He was just a fantastic cop. He was compassionate to everyone that he dealt with. He was very, very smart. I got on the job not even a year before Alex got hired, but he had had time. He had, he had had previous experience. He worked at a college, and he had been promoted to college. And when he came to Abington, he was already a wealth of knowledge that everybody who was there, no matter how much time they had on the job, they could go up to him and run things by him. They have a complicated call. Alex would be one of the first people they talked to about do I have probable cause? How should I handle this? What are the what are the appropriate charges? And then how to handle it at court? Alex had that down cold. He was he he was he was just all around a fantastic police officer. People would come in comp, talking about even if he wasn't there, talking about how he had been so helpful with different calls. I remember there was one call. I'll never forget this. It was such a complicated, convoluted call where somebody was being harassed in such a in in complicated manner and he figured it out he got other agencies involved i think he got state and maybe even federal agencies involved and figured this thing out the report was pages and pages and pages long and he just kept working at it working at it and and got got it to a successful resolution in the end mm. and that was just how he, he he was relentless he was very smart he was he was kind to everyone he dealt with on the street one funny story about Alex was he—he he was a great cop, but he—he he did pepper spray me once. <laughs> in, in his, in his why defense, why did you just throw that in there? It's like what? In Alex's defense, it was a bank shot. The subject was between me and him, and he appropriately—he—he he wasn't afraid to use tools, and he went right to the uh, to the OC, and it was very successful. I'm told because I was blinded. <laughs> but he oh gained immediate compliance. <laughs> I was immediately compliant too because I'd have the firefighters walk me out of the house. <laughs> but that was that was just fond memories. Oh yeah. my goodness! I mean, that's awesome. I mean, wow! Did you suffer? You suffer? You were blind after that? And the pepper spray in the face. He pepper spray. Is pepper sprayed you in the face? Yep, it, it was a bank <laughs> shot. It. it Reflected off the subject and then went into my face because we were in very close proximity with, with everybody who was involved. Wow, wow! But it, it worked like a charm. The person was actively fighting with us and the firefighters, and once he once he got hit with it, immediately that was it. Complied, right in the handcuffs. So again, so I'm told because I couldn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know what? He 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 actually was a very is very smart guy. Very very smart. He was also going to law school. Um, at the same I time, was just gonna mention that. yeah, he he was going to law school, and um, so much wanted to be able to to finish out his degree and um, and finish out law school and hopefully you know aspire to his dreams um, of becoming a lawyer and representing maybe yeah. first response you never know. Um, in the long run, Tommy, you want to chime in? Oh, he he was extremely smart. I, I also point out that uh, that Lesage was saying the uh, thing about him looking up to him after he only had two years on and uh, I believe Alex at that time had only had like four years on and and he could <laughs> he could outsmart everybody you know tell everyone chapters and sections about laws and 
and procedure and he, he knew everything and he was going he was going to law school at night yep. i mean he was doing a law school he was doing the union stuff he was doing he was doing everything yeah and, uh, very and, ambitious and that's 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 a lot more than somebody yeah. who's just showing up for their eight hour shift yeah you know yeah um yeah and 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 meanwhile struggling with his issues with what, what was going on and um School resource, I mean, ton, tons of stuff. And and when he did it, he made sure that he did it appropriately. And, you know, he was he he did yeah. it better than anybody else who would show up. So yeah, it was it was amazing. He was uh, he was a un- unbelie- unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I remember unbelievable when I, I had the uh, the junior academy um, and he was over at the court. I bring the kids in and he had a, a mock um, courtroom and everything else. And, uh, you know, he was he was excellent, uh, you know, especially for the kids. Um, you know, I mean, you know, one thing just bringing it back to is, you know, in our conversation, he loved his family. He did. Uh, he loves, loves his, loves, loves his kids. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I'm just thinking about back to the DC trip and everything else that he was yep. discussing with me. Yeah, absolutely. His kids were everything for him. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, guys, thank you so much for sharing this stuff that, you know, that is all personal to you, your own personal memories of him, um, that fun stuff. Um, but we lost him, right, um, on October 29, 2018. Um, none of you guys, oh, who wants to chime in as far as that day? Do you remember that day? Yeah, I remember that day like it was yesterday, some parts of it. Share with us. Some parts I remember like it was yesterday, other parts... Felt like it was a whirlwind because it was a whirlwind. Yeah. Um, Blur. So that day I was at in-service training in Randolph. Um, that day was a very tough day for me because in the morning, my next-door neighbor, who's a Boston firefighter, passed from cancer. So that was I was already I was already going down going down that rabbit hole because my next-door neighbor he was a he, for decades in the Boston Fire Department. He was a firefighter. I was a police officer. Became friends with him right after I moved into my house over in Holbrook uh, 10 years ago now. And that was in the morning. And then got out of in-service, did what I was normally doing. And one of the ways that I deal with any sort of stress, I go to the gym. So I understand the, 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 the benefits of it. It's a hobby for me. And I, and I know that it, it, it has the... Uh, the, the dolphins, of, right? Dolphins, yes. The, mm-hmm. the fancy science stuff that it does to you. Um, so I was, got out of in-service, was getting myself ready, and I was driving to the gym. And this is stuff that I'll never forget the rest of my life. I got a phone call from one of my good friends in the Aventure Fire Department. Or, no, I got a text message, I think it was. And I think the text message said, is this Alex? And then I thought that he was texting the wrong number and was trying to get in touch with Alex. So I replied jokingly, ha-ha, no, I wish. So then next thing I know is he's calling me. And I could just tell in his tone there's something wrong. And he said, no, is, is, is this Alex? Like, wh- what do you mean? Like, we got notified that there's a call-out of an Abington police officer in Marshfield. And, um, and I'm thinking, wh- what's going on? Is it th- they said there's a barricade or a report of a barricade is all the information they had at the time. But it wasn't that. Those... So I hung up on him and I called Tom. And Tom said, just get down here. So I was driving on 37 of Braintree. I remember exactly where I was for all this stuff. 
driving to my truck and let's get on the highway, go down there. I'm driving. I think I'm just trying to wrap my head around what's, what, what's going on. But I'm thinking that something involving Alex and there's something really wrong. And I didn't, I don't think I even had time to get into the what ifs or what, so my, what it might be. So you went, you guys weren't told or notified from the department, from the department at that time? This is Tom, come on. Uh, no, no. Um, I think we all kind of, we all, we all, we all told each other. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, I got, I got information. It, it was, it was kind of like an emergency situation down there. And then, then it kind of like started getting spread out through the cop world, you know, through mm. phone text messages and everything. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I got, I got notified from somebody who, who told me and, uh, remember calling talking to stevie marquardt and tony and i think did we drive down there in my truck yeah trying to change his direction and yeah we were trying to change you know get in touch with them if this was all true as this was un- unraveling to try to get him on the phone and try to keep calling them and trying to get them to come to us I, I remember we went we went down there and uh and I, I saw some things that i didn't like um when we showed up, um, some some people that shouldn't have been on scene. Our bosses but, um, were there and not even passed it on. To yeah, us. if if a police officer is going through a crisis or whatever something in that situation, I don't think that their bosses should be outside of the residence one bit. Um, I don't I don't think that's you know that's we go back to the stigma. You know, if somebody's going through a situation, you shouldn't get their <clears throat> boss outside standing there, you know, watching the whole thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. The sad part um, is Alex did go to them. Several weeks prior, about all his situation, all the issues that were arising, so they did have um, some awareness of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, so we 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 showed up, and uh, <clears throat> I remember just getting like completely involved in it at that point, and like I, I just woke up, woken up from that call, and I don't even think I brushed my teeth at that point. I, I like I just remember just being there, and. Um, Remember, I was like brought in the command center, asking to send a text message, see if he would respond, and everything. And uh, and there was nothing. And and then uh, then later that night, I just remember it started getting dark, and one of my one of my good friends uh, had come over and kind of like broke the news to me. Um, and then we all kind of, I don't I don't think there was a lot of words said. I think it was just t- it was tears at that point, you know. And we were all <clears throat> standing in a parking lot that none of us had been to before uh, in Marshfield, and. It was uh, sad, and then um, from that point, I, I mean, I, I started, I, I got a whole second family when I started meeting you guys, yeah. and, um, and, and then to here today, you know. Yeah. I mean. Absolutely. It was tough being on scene, especially when you, the radio's not that, the police radios were not that far from us, and hearing everything going on, and the robots being deployed into the house and all that, it, it was... It was getting more and more realistic of what could be. Yeah. You know. Ryan, do you want to chime in? It was very chaotic, very confusing. The uh, I think it was the metro. You were driving down. You the last th- so time yeah, you jumped in, you were driving, driving down thirty seven. And <coughs> it was. I don't even remember what I did. It probably it was probably a twenty twenty five minute ride. I don't even remember what I did. I might have called somebody in my family and. I'm not even sure. I might have I might have texted somebody in my family that there was something wrong that I was that I was 
that there that there might be something going on with one of my one of my friends, one of my coworkers. I'm just not sure. And then next thing I remember, I remember driving by the street. Alex lived on a small street. It was all blocked off. The uh, the SWAT team was there. The crisis team was there. There were a lot of people there mm-hmm. because they were doing what they have to do. If yeah. That w- I'm, and I know that I remember after the fact that there were some people that were very upset by the by the SWAT team being outside of house, his house because it was Alex, but they were doing what they had to do, and, yeah. I, and I always understood that. And I remember going. There was, I was one of the last ones to get there. I know Tom was there, Tony was there, some of the, some of our other very close friends and coworkers and colleagues were there. Um, and there were there was a lot of standing around, a lot of waiting calling his phone, I was calling his phone, um, and just the what if, what, what, is he, is he okay, is he not okay, just all those thoughts just, just, yeah. just whirling around my mind, and, yeah. and all of us trying to just wrap our heads around what was, what was happening, and it really sunk in when one of the crisis negotiators was really, really compassionate with us, came up and let us know that they just said they're, they're bringing in the ambulance. That's what I knew. I believe that gentleman was uh, Yanni Tamush. So he's, and he's a great, uh, he's on the hostage negotiating team. And, and yeah, and I think everybody can remember him coming over and, and he was one of the, that that was that was a big moment in in all of our lives, and uh, the way that he was very compassionate with all of us. Um, so I, I appreciate him for that. Uh, thank you, Yanni. Thank you sir, for saying that. Tom, you want to chime in? Uh, I remember I was on shift. I'd previously discussed this again on a previous show, but um, I was on shift, um, and I had heard throughout the grapevine just you know colleagues talking and everything about specifically. Um, the situation how it was rapidly evolving, um, and I knew that there was some movement from our personnel, meaning friends and everybody trying to go down to Marshfield, and and I I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to to be out there and and help outreach. And I was speaking to another colleague who I believe went to the academy with him, and I was just like, "Hey man, you just got to keep me updated on everything. Like, can we call him? Do we go down there? Like, what do we do?" Um, and like. I was still expected to answer emergency calls throughout the day. And wow. usually I can remember, like, you know, what I did during the day or whatever. I have not a single recollection recollection of an emergency call I took, of a car crash, a domestic. I don't recall anything that I did um, because this was the this was the event of the day. This, was, this took total focus. Mm. Um, and I just remember maintaining communication, um, you know, with my colleagues and everything, just trying to collectively be there together and just more like information grab gathering for me. Um, again, just being, you know, so young on two years on never dealing with something like this. Uh, it was, uh, it was just a critical moment in my professional career. And then it wasn't until I got home that evening, I got the text message saying, you know, what had occurred. And I just remember like calling up Stevie Marquardt and like bawling my eyes out to him being like, you know, like just absolutely distraught, and yeah, yeah that was. I said it before. It's one of one of the most critical events, professional events that I've ever experienced in my life. Okay, thank you for sharing that, Tom. 
Um, so guys, um, Alex passed, as as um, Ryan had started to said. They, you know, we're calling the ambulance. We're bringing an ambulance in. Um, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. I, I know what it was like for our family, but I can't imagine um, what this experience has been like for you guys. Um, to, you know, Tom, you saying, I'm on shift. I can't even leave. I, I don't remember what call, what calls came in, what emergencies came in. I don't remember any of that stuff. Um, everything just sort of probably seemed like a blur. Um, this is not real. Um, because that's what it felt like for us as a family. But here we are, um, you know, after Alex's loss. And I want to sort of talk to you guys about, like, you in the department. How did your department, if you're comfortable sharing, how, did it, how was it handled um, to offer you resources um, afterwards? Um, was the resources offered to you? Did you feel supported? Or did you feel comfortable sharing how you were feeling? Were you angry? Did they, were they a, a department that knew what to do? Or did you just like, you know, a lot of times I hear uh, in sort of situations like this, I just think departments don't know, are not prepared for this stuff. And, um, and they don't know what to do. And so, did you feel that? Does anyone want to chime in? Oh, so we we were on a, we were on scene, just literally in that parking lot, and uh, and I remember that's exactly when like the after started, and um, and I got approached by our department head to to be the family liaison because we weren't too sure whether or not the family would like what was um, going on with them. Um, so at that point, I remember I reached out to you guys and, uh, and we started kind of like the process of trying to put together the funeral and, and everything. Mm -hmm. And I had no experience whatsoever doing this. Um, and it was a week full of that. I don't, I don't think I got a lot of sleep and I think every single one of us came together in the department and we all took we all took like kind of like different responsibilities and we delegated them down and, and we all, we all got through it. And it was, it was the patrol officers and sergeants that got it done in, in my opinion, a hundred percent. And, uh, the department themselves, I think it, they took a very big step back. And, uh, I think that was a good thing in all honesty. And, um, we got the peer support group out there. Uh, they talked to us and that would lead me to, uh, that was the first time I ever got introduced to this whole peer support thing. I, I had no idea about it. I like, I'm sure that I was probably taught in the academy. Yeah. Probably didn't pay attention. It was probably just one of those days. And, yeah. uh, and didn't really think, you know, that, oh, okay. And that I'm uh, ever going to need this. Yeah. And, and I took down somebody's phone number that night and, uh, and two years later that, that phone number would actually come in handy. And, um, and so this whole peer support group thing, I think that is, the golden backbone of police departments to help their police officers get through the stress the, and everything, everything that we're dealing with. And um, it's kind of like, um, 
I'm sure we're going to get into it from, mm-hmm. from, from when we get there. But uh, in regards to that, I think that was the best thing that, that could have been done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think looking back, that week was wicked stressful, having to try to figure out funeral arrangements, police officers going here, what schedules, how we were going to cover shifts and, like, all that. And I felt like it was a lot of decisions that we had to make, and, and, and we got through it. I, I It honestly felt like everything kind of, like – meshed together Every, everybody stepped up and mm. it was i i feel like i can't even sit here and say all the agencies that that came that came together because i'd miss a couple you know yeah. if i even yeah. pointed out one right now but uh everybody came together and you're talking different police departments different towns everything and uh who stepped up and come in e- to support every, you guys every, every single person that we know and and I, I I will say say this it's it's not just because of thin blue line police and all this mm. it's because Alex was such a great person he had touched so many people that all of a sudden everybody came out and and it was insane and and it was it was it was almost overwhelming my phone my phone would not stop ringing I had to, I had to like turn my phone off when I went to bed like to try to get sleep and wow. uh, and every. And like I said, that's all from Alex's character and, and how loving he was and how much of a friend he was to everybody. He he had so so many people across the state in different in different uh, in different states. It was it was uh, it was a great thing to see in such a such a terrible uh, moment, you know. I think um, I think the Weymouth PD was also extremely um, resourceful because they had just gone through probably one of the worst events. Um, anyone could imagine and um you know they uh really came out and um helped us uh, especially with the peer support um but also you know what would uh transpire you know down the line and you know kind of what to what to think about for taking care of yourself or your family One thing I do definitely remember is how how amazing the the fire department was. The Abington Fire Department they they were so supportive of us. All the personnel, the union. I think the union didn't the union pay for us to all get together that night at a restaurant just so that we had some place to go so we could all be together. They were just so supportive, and that's something I'll never forget is just how supportive everybody at the fire department was. Mm. One of the first phone calls I made was to one of my good friends in the fire department where. That was, that was the first time I cried was when I had to tell him that Alex was gone. First of many times was that day. He, he didn't know what was happening, so he called me because we, we all get along so well with the fire department. We did that, and we still do. It's like Not even just in Blue Line. Like Everybody at the fire department knew Alex. They loved him. They respected him. They enjoyed working with him. Mm. And there's, there's just, like Tom said, there's just too many people to thank because there's so much, so much love and support came out from so many different places that it would take too long just to recognize everybody. And you don't want to forget something. You don't want to so forget someone. Yeah, absolutely. So after that. Yeah. So it sounds like after, you know, uh, the initial fact of <sighs> started getting together, right, and offering comfort, I suppose, to each other, um, you know, that evening. And, and, you know, within the week after, Tom, you had said, you know, the week after it was sort of like a blur hard to get to, figure this out I didn't know what to do I'd never gone through this experience before right of helping a family organize a funeral and um you know yourselves right but the parents came in to support you um 
But did your own department? I know your department, you said your department brought in peer support. Um, did your own department offer you peer support? Like, maybe then, that week, the week after. Um, I want to start to get into you guys, like, you know, we talked earlier on about how it affected you, right? You had survivor's guilt. Um, you were, you know, all struggling with that. Um, Alex's loss, the what-ifs, the why's afterwards. But what about the funeral's over and you're back to normal at work or you're expected to go back to normal at work and, um, and get on with your job and do what you, what you need to do? It was sort of like shutting the barn door after the horse got out. Oh, there was... Explain what that means. People were brought in after the fact and... They, there was a, I think it was a, a class was put on where they talked about mental health and suicide prevention. And I was in that class and I was just fuming. Like, it's too late. Everybody knew there was a problem. And there was definitely a stigma in our agency about reaching out for help. Mm. And it was, it was believed that reaching out with help would be used not as a tool to get the help, but as as something that would be wielded against the individual reaching out for help. Yeah. Where it, they would be relegated or punished in some sort of way or just not received the way it should be received. Right, or retired out um, in that sort of way. So the, the support wasn't there from the department in general Definitely by not. the administration. Definitely not. Um, it was known. Yeah, absolutely. That, that the administration was hostile to mental health yeah and supporting the men and women yeah. and you know we talk about it in this day and age right um you know as i as i said earlier on and this is what sort of you know i suppose inspired me um to use my energy you know not to wallow in in our loss and stay mad and angry and sad right but to use um you know my energy into doing something um as I, as you know, I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate to to be in in an environment where I see a lot of first responders every day, and uh, and there was a stigma, right? Um, for even for us as a family, and me personally, if I if I'm talking about that to to say, if someone asked me, you know, we heard you had a loss, you lost your son, or the picture of Alex up on the wall, and I would never say at the beginning that he died by suicide, and um just for fear of being judged as a family. And um, very quickly, um, that left me, um, just from other first responders coming in and talking to me and sharing their own struggles. Um, and I think they felt comfortable because they knew we had gone through it as a family, uh, as a, a first responder family. Um, but, um, you know, turning that, energy into something positive to be able to help others and and that became a purpose um hence what led into you know myself and jake connecting um and having conversations about you know mental health in within first response in general right jay um but also you know starting the podcast together we both have a, a passion about that um of breaking that stigma um so tom i can see you're biting at a bit to get on the microphone there as far as you you want to chime in well, you, you said you said like the wallowing, and then you have to fill yeah. it with something. You have, yes. to, you have to fill that fill that conversation with yourself that you're having with something else. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, 
like like I said, I I, I felt like I felt like after the fact, um, after Alex, that that's that's all I could think about for for a long time, and uh, and and me and Alex like us us all together, we were all um, trying trying our best <clears throat> to try to make uh, our department better, and um, and we were doing it in ways that 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 we had seen others come before us and and they they didn't do it like that and and we were we were fighting and we were trying and then Alex Alex us losing Alex um really was like the like kick kick down you know and yeah. and it really made us feel like lost and uh and then when we got lost, like we started having those conversations in our heads where we were like, well, "What could we have done? What could we have done this?" And then it was that moment. Now, now every now is like a new chapter in life. It wasn't we were we were fighting to make things better. Now it was like, "Whoa! Like, what could I have done to to save our friend?" And mm-hmm. um, and I feel like I said, wallowing in that doesn't 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 do much. It, it, it only gets worse. And and if you, and if you're struggling with that today, you're still wallowing. You have to reach out. You have to reach out, and you have to talk to, talk to somebody, because that's that's how we get to those points. Yes. Where, where Alex is mine. Yeah. And um, I'll go, I'll go into the stigma, the stigma part. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why police officers don't reach out. That's that's why Alex didn't reach out. There was no trust there between the administration. I know it says like, oh, it's like, um, we don't have um, programs or we don't have this that X Y Z. There has to be trust there. Where if you're gonna say what you what you need to say from um, from yourself, that 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 person is gonna appropriately act in a way that's not gonna hurt you more. Yeah, and that and that's it. And that's what that felt like. Yeah, being, be, being in an apartment where if you open your mouth, you're gonna get hurt more than you already are. So so shut your mouth and then wallow in your thoughts and then get stuck there. Yeah. Um, I'll say, like I said, the peer support group is one of the best things that that policing that law enforcement has going on. Um, it's across the country, and having a phone number in each and every single law enforcement's cell phone—that's that's that's your connection to the world, right? We we all have nine one one whenever an emergency happens. Um, Jay, you were going on about um, the like injury, like uh, you were talking about like people like working out and stuff. If somebody works out on their own time and they get hurt. They go and see a doctor, and then they tell their department, hey, I can't come to work because my, my arm's broken. Well, that's the same thing with mental health. But that person has to be able to say that. Hey, I'm not having a good time. I can't come into work today. Don't make my life worse. Yeah. Right? I'm going to go get help, and then I'm going to come back. And that is how it's going down today. And I hope I hope it's at other departments because I've seen it happen multiple times, and, and it's working. It's yes. working. It's keeping. It's keeping officers. It's keeping officers having the conversations that they need to have, but um, having having great friends is is great and all. But it's, sometimes it's hard, very hard to share how you feel with well, those people that you're going to see every day. Well, yeah, absolutely, so, because some of those great friends are also police officers. Exactly. And exactly. and a lot of you have been through the same experience, right? Together, sitting here around this table today, and um, you know, one of you might be looking at each other and saying, "Well, he's dealing with this better than me." Um, he's dealing with, he saw the same thing as me. He, 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 he's gone through the same experience with me, but he's handling it better. I'm not going to say anything yep. because I'm going to be, I'm going to be classed as weak here. I could be judged here. So and also getting back to the, what you just said about in your department, you have to have a belief from your department that they're going to help you 
Um, they can say all they want, but their actions are what is really going to have you believe that you're going to be supported by your department. And and just start to get back to that, and I say it in many, 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 many um, interviews that we do, if a first responder goes and seeks help in the department and they get help and they're, and they're well and they're being supported and another guy is looking on, he's also going to believe if he's feeling something and he goes and seeks help, he's also going to receive the same. On the other backside of that, if a first responder goes and seeks help and he's being punished or ridiculed because of that, another guy looking on is also going to believe that he's going to f- receive the same. So, um, and, that's, and that's true. So there is great departments that are so supportive um, of their men and women. You're in a, a, job, a job that's a trauma job. Um, what you see every day is not normal. And so the experiences that and the effects that you um, experience is normal for you to not be okay um, after um, your days shift, right? It doesn't matter if it's a big call or a small call or, wh- or whatever it might be, but you pick up something with every call. And, and eventually, if it's not dealt with and you're, f- f- you're feeling different or you might notice that you're drinking a lot more um, when you come home from work or you're cranky or, or you're not involved, you're isolating away f- yourself away from your family because um, you don't want your family to notice um, what's going on with you. Guess what? They're, they're signs, and, and they're signs that you also see amongst each other because you spend every day with each other, right, in your departments. So I urge you... Say that again, Tom. I'm very stoned to this whole thing. Say that again. I'm very stoned to what's going on, what you deal with on the job every day to day. Yeah. And it's just almost expected of you to just handle it. Years ago, I've had my traumas. It, it just, and there was no place to turn. The same exact thing we've talked about at this table right here, of finding help how to deal with it, being new on the job, you know, and, and not looking like you're weak. And there's times that I've had my moments, <coughs> excuse me, I had a lot of trauma in about within eight days of life, and I wanted to take that cruise and literally put it into a tree. And I don't know what stopped me from doing that. But you deal with it, you, and I got, I learned that going to talk to a therapist is the, the best thing you can do for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you have nothing in your closet that day, you keep those connections open, not putting that boulder or rock in right. that backpack, right? Going to houses, helping families, helping everybody get on with their lives, but you still carry what their their problems are, and you take it home with you, and it just keeps on building and building. But the more you go to therapy, the more you, you talk to your friends, talk it out, you're dumping your closet, I call it. You're, you're cleaning out your chest. You're, you're making yourself fresh for the next day. Yeah. And it just back then, exactly what we talked about, the support was not there had the fear of what's going to happen next. I'm going to feed for my family. I have a young family at that point. How are we going to get through this? Where are we going to go next? Am I going to look down on as a failure? And the supports that these guys have today that I didn't have, it, it's, it's outstanding how far it's come. Yes. Outstanding. Yes, and, and there is change. Alex had to be the one in our little group to make us really find that help because mm-hmm. it wasn't there years and ago. And the more you spoke up and, and tried to get help, it just... Yeah. The old school way, it just wasn't there. Well, well, not only that, it, w- it was fostered from the department. It came from the head down, right? So if the department wasn't going to support you, well, guess what? You weren't going to talk about it amongst everyone else because um, 
I need my job here. Um, but if you had had a department or administration that was supportive of that and let you believe that you're going to be supported, um, Tom, um, guess what? It, it, Tony, sorry, it would have been a hell of a different journey for you. Much different. Yeah, absolutely. Fun like, timing. You know, when you go talk to your therapist and stuff like that, and you, you talk about different things, and it's like, hey, that's just thinking, thinking. It's, it just, it's normal to talk the, the way you're talking. It's how we deal with it, how we move on. They're words, but it's, it's just, you got to empty your closet, no yeah. matter what. I believe in, I've learned it that way, and it's the best thing going because you help a lot more people out in the street, the families that are going through their traumas. And you, it just it works in the long yeah, it's better for you, better for your family, um, better for your department, right? If you're if you're able to unload um, the department that you're working in, and you're able to unload that stuff and not fe- have fear, um, it's better all around. It's better for the the community that you're serving, right? Just Justin, you want to chime in? Yeah, uh, I mean, we're all human. All this uh, takes a little a little bit, and um, you know, thinking about Alex. You know, I remember uh, being involved in a, uh, you know, a traumatic event and a, a serious call uh, that had happened uh, with Alex and um, uh, you know other individuals too within the department. And um, you know, from this event, uh, how peer support has changed. You know, how it's someone from the outside coming in. It's uh, genuine instead of a check in the box yeah. um, to get through. You know, uh, I know that, you know, another thing, thinking back to that event and, and the peer support that was offered, you know, um, I was sitting in a room with Alex and things were still going on. We weren't taken out of that environment. You know, so as we're going through and hearing, like, the signs that you should look out for down the line or, you know, if anything changes inside of you uh, to get help, we're still in an environment in which there's just chaos and there's, um, it's within, in, in the department alone, you know, so yeah. it's not like a um, confidential uh, matter, you know, it's, it's something that was, um, you know, kind of something that I, I took as this is where things need to change. If someone did go through something like this that we did traumatically, um, the, the peer support need, needed to change. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, things are kind of where they are now, you know, where it is confidential, where it's outside of the event. It's outside of um, even the department. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is... You know, and, 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 you know, what, what was offered wasn't tailored to us, you know, and that's a big thing. A lot of things are just, you know, human resources, pers- you, know, um, you know, EAP just given out there, but it's not tailored to um, the job that we do in, in public safety or, you know, the police or fire. And I think that that matters a lot. Absolutely. Know, especially when you have someone genuine who stands before you. Yes, absolutely. And You're referring to some of that training that I had to do some of that training. I had to, I got assigned to <coughs> teach some of those classes, and I remember Alex was in those classes with us. Was that was that what you're you're talking about? Maybe. But I remember I had to I had to teach some of these classes that talked about mental health, talked about suicide prevention, and I'm sitting in front of my friends, my colleagues, my coworkers, 
and we're all thinking the same thing. Like they they assigned like they assigned me to teach the classes, and they assigned everyone to attend the classes. But where's the buy-in for the material with the environment that we're in at that time? Mm. We all know the kind of environment that we were working in, the, the 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 work culture that we were in, the institutional stress that we had to deal with day by day, and then, like Justin mentioned, checking a box. That's what it felt like is they were checking a box, and I've and I tried to kind of make it personal for all of us to make it as do the best that I could because I like I don't want to be in front of people teaching a class if I'm not buying into it. Then, I, then it doesn't feel authentic to me. So I was doing the best that I could, and like I mentioned before, that's why I, I took Alex's loss particularly hard because I was trying to. I was trying to do whatever little I could to make the culture even a little bit better, if I if it was even possible. Yeah. Trying to trying to bring a little bit of a something positive into the into the toxic workplace that we were all in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we we actually just had a trauma specialist on a couple of weeks ago, um, Sarah Gare, and um, you know she she talks about how she goes around different departments um, and sort of introduces or starts helping establish like a peer support system in departments but she she also teaches you know lots of like psychological first aid and one of the things that she talks about is soul exhaustion um um and also toxic stress within the department and um you know we've we've had the privilege of having having this lady on and sort of learning you know a lot about her um, what she teaches within departments and it's great so if you want to listen to that podcast um, take a listen to it but that sort of sounds like what you guys were dealing with you were dealing with a lot of toxic stress um, within your department Thomas want to chime in there I, I feel like uh, we're, we're, we all sat in those classes um, all the time and if if you're not leaving that class with some type of connection to the pipeline of resources um, to be able to get into, like, like I said, um, I'll, I'll go to this every time, a phone number in a police officer, uh, any, any emergency personnel, any, anybody, firefighters, uh, dispatchers, they can't forget about them. They, yeah. they go through the same stuff as us, mm-hmm. um, fire, all that. Um, if you're not leaving these type of programs with some type of phone number entered in your phone, I almost feel like they should force you to like enter it in your phone as like a reach out. And I know a lot, all the peer support groups, they have like phone numbers that you can reach. And uh, if you don't leave that class, then you're not leaving with anything. You're just leaving with information that you're probably going to forget. And um, these situations, they don't happen in class. They don't usually happen on, on, on shift. They happen when that officer is alone. They're alone. They have no one to reach out to. And those are the moments where they need the help. Mm. And we have our cell phone on us all the time. Mm. And if they have a phone number to call and it's reiterated, 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 if you're down in the dumps, if you're in that situation where you feel like you're losing control and you need somebody to talk to, there's somebody to call. Yeah. And that's what all those people need. It's, it's the classes are great. Everything's great. But if they're not leaving there with some type of emergency button to be able to escape and go boom, and then get into the pipeline of resources to go on to, out to on-site, to go to, like, get therapists or, or whatever they need, 
then it's pointless. Then they right. only know that it's there. Yeah. You know, and then they'll be in that moment and they won't know what to do. And then they'll sit there and think about, oh, I can't call this person because this person might call that. I don't want to call my buddy because I don't want to put the regret on them because then they might have to do something. And then they might, I might lose my job and they might blame themselves. And, and that's, and that's the thoughts. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Alex might not want to put any burden on us. Yeah. You know, without a doubt, he, he probably thought about that. Mm-hmm. But if he was able to reach out to somebody that, that, yeah, give, give him, enter, enter into the pipeline. If, if we have that like emergency number, that, that number to be able to do that, um, I feel like that's the good thing. Like I said, the classes are great, but if you, if you leave there and you go home, you're, you're not in that class getting the resources, you don't have anywhere to turn. Yeah. So I just want to let you know how spot on you are with what you just said because probably a couple of years after Alex had passed, it it took me that long to realize I'm not okay. I was I was still it it was over the over years I was still processing his loss, going through all the stages of grief. I mean, we've all heard of the uh, five stages of grief and I'll tell you right now they're absolutely real. I I remember going through the denial stage, the anger stage, the sadness stage. I was never angry with Alex, but the, I, I felt a lot of anger. And I think that was the last stage I was in before I finally reached out. And, Tom, like you said, the, f- the phone number is so important because exactly like you said, when you make that call, you're alone. Because I, I still remember when I made that phone call. I called somebody from the Metro Stress Team. I got the phone number several days before from a close friend of the department, our union president at the time, and he could tell. He could tell there was something, something was off. So there was something not right with me. And he was absolutely right. Pulled me aside. Like, hey, I'm just, you, you okay? I could, you're, you're, not, you're awfully quiet. You just don't seem like yourself. And I, I credit him. For thank, I'm, I'm glad that he pulled me aside because I'd been, I'd been struggling with Alex for all those years, and there was new institutional administrative stress on top of the old stress. And like Tony had talked about, emptying out your closet. The, the term that I, that I recall somebody using with me was the backpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, my backpack was full. It was weighing me down, and I had to empty it. Yeah. If I didn't empty it, I, I, didn't, I could feel it. I, could, I, I had to empty the backpack, and I knew I had to make a call. I couldn't. I knew that I, look, I can't do this myself. And Describe, tell us what, what that feeling was like. You said, I could feel it. My backpack was full. It was and I needed to empty it. What, what it was, was that feeling, feeling like? That I don't want to go into work anymore. I love my job. I still love my job. It was a feeling maybe, I'm, maybe I just want to walk away from this career. And just kind of like a, like a carelessness or recklessness. Like maybe I'll just quit tomorrow. Mm. I don't know how I'm going to put the food on the table the next day. I don't care. And I knew like, no, that's not like I'm again, you get I get emotional versus rational. A little angel, little devil, got the little devil saying, "I don't care. I can't do this anymore. I can't work in this capacity. I'm working anymore." And then I get the little angel on my shoulder. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! Pump the brakes. You have the phone number. Thankfully, I was provided with that phone number, and I was at home. I remember it was dark out. I don't remember what time of year it was, but I made the call. Called somebody in the stress team. I said, "Hey." I need to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, and, the, and they ask the, the questions, like, where are you right now? I'm like, at home. It's like, 
do you need me to come over there? I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm okay, I'm safe, but I need to talk to somebody. Met up with a couple of people on the stress team. We met at some, we, of course, I didn't want to go into Abington. Met someplace, we were just met up and just started talking, just told them what my situation was. Got a plan, put me in touch with a, with a therapist who I still see to this day. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Laurie, I still talk to Laurie. And that really changed my life for the better. Just talking, the talk therapy, talking about my life, talking about my professional life, my personal life, just talking through everything that I'd experienced with the loss of Alex, even going before Alex's loss, the tremendous guilt that I felt processing that, the tremendous anger that I felt processing that, Mm -hmm. coping with the institutional stress, coping with the additional stresses. Shortly after Alex's death, I got promoted to acting sergeant in his place. I got his desk. That was that was a that was a mind job. Getting promoted because my close friend died and getting his spot. That was very difficult to deal with. And that was additional stress and I kind of put that off because now I'm a sergeant. I got a shift to look out for. I want to make sure that I, w- I want to keep my guys safe too, because we're we're still in this toxic work environment. But now I'm responsible for for my guys, and I, f- I felt like I was I wanted to be that barrier between them and administration to try to make things a little bit better for them. So I'm I'm carrying that additional burden, and I think I was kind of just putting myself second and not taking care of my needs and it just it built up it built up is cumulative stress and it just everything started boiling over and fortunately other people recognize that I don't know what would have happened if they didn't and I made that phone call and it absolutely changed my life thank you for sharing that man I just I just like to point out that that we're all incredibly close best friends with Ryan and and yeah. that's the first time I heard about that. So, like I said, having that phone number is one of the most important things in the world. He knows he can reach out to me in a heartbeat. You know, absolutely, Tom. So, so this is what I'm saying. It's 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 important. Like all the officers, all the new guys going through the academy, they should have some no- phone number in their uh, in their thing before they even put boots on that graduation deck. Mm. Um, if the old, like I know. Um, a lot of police officers now, we should be doing buddy checks, making sure, hey, you got that number. If, you, if you're if concerned about somebody, don't just end that conversation and be like, oh, man, should I say something? What was that? Uh, make sure they have that number. Do a buddy check with your friends. Make sure that they have something that when they're alone back at their house, like we always are, if they're in their conversation with themselves, they have someone to be able to have that conversation with because it is incredibly hard to even have it with your best friend with your family, with mm-hmm. everything. And that's why, like, I, I, it hurts when I hear people talking about the regret that they have that they didn't do something mm-hmm. because yeah. they don't understand that it's, it happens a lot. And it happens a lot to, to family, to friends and all this, and everybody, it, the, the regret's always there. And uh, the person, no matter how close they are to you, they sometimes just don't believe that they should put that burden on you. Mm-hmm. you know? First responders are notorious for keeping secrets and for hiding things. 
special police officers and um so you're very good hiders um to to pretend to pretend that you're okay you're all you're all like smiling all across around the table at me because you all know you are um keeping it keeping it secret especially this guy here too and uh, you all think that you can get through this yourself you're going to fix it or you're going to shake it off um or go to gym or pick up some other thing that is offering you some form of comfort um, whether it be alcohol or substance use, um, whatever that might be. Um, but you're notorious for hiding things um, and keeping it a secret. You're all smiling over across the table at me because you all know you are. Well, it is true, and it's been, it's particularly true in this culture for reasons that probably make sense and matter, right? And those things work until they don't. Uh, I think your point about having the phone number is so important and so valid. Um, mental health is, is part of overall health. And we're injured in other ways uh, besides mental or emotional injuries, suffering traumatic reactions. We can answer that what, right? There's always a clear answer, a systemic answer. You hurt your leg. You're not sitting there alone uh, catastrophizing about it. What am I going to do? How do I heal this? Do I do surgery? Or am I, like The what is clear. I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to go to a doctor. I'm going to get my, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know where the answer is. I know where that what is. Um, and we had we had a, a, a member of the PS support team, a retired Revere police officer, on recently who, who agreed with you so much. He shared his phone number on the podcast, and he goes, "I don't just call me. I don't care, you know," because he understood. And me and Linda both looked at each other, and he goes, "I still got boundary issues. I don't know what to tell you." But uh, he understood that that it is so important because when someone's having the, that moment, they're gonna be alone. Uh, and that is more often the case within within our culture for for many of the reasons that have been mentioned. Um, yeah, I think that's so important. I'm wondering if any of you guys had ways that that uh, you found helpful to cope in the aftermath. We talked a lot about those initial weeks, and it sounds like uh, you guys were able to to reach out and develop those resources for your members by your members, right? You guys got in touch with peer support brought them in but but after that um how, how did you cope did you cope did you just sit with it well this is going to sound strange um but you know i think one way that this group was uh was gaming together <laughs> uh well yeah we we had uh um some some games that we would play um some some of us got a little bit better than most but um we 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 kind of um, I don't want to say isolate ourselves, but you know we kind of all had the same feelings, all had the same emotions. We didn't really have to discuss it, but we had some. And maybe it, you know, maybe it's something about you know being guys and whatever it is, you know, and and trying to be brave. Um, but we were all doing something the same, both um, you know, metaphorically and physically, you know. We we all got a lot closer. That's for sure. Yeah. So it was a, there was a lot more phone calls uh, to each other than there was before. So um, and it was a lot more like, hey, you, you know, you're my friend, right? Like like, but that that wasn't there before. That was kind of like you're my coworker and nice to meet you, and you know. But 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 we were friends, you know. But yeah, we came with hung out and stuff. But then it was like, yeah, it was it was. You know, we built a bond because we went through this terrible trauma. And, I mean, we had gone on calls together, and there had been trauma, and, and it wasn't there, and then and then this. Um, but, like, going going after the fact, 
yeah, it, it, it took me, I, I mean, I, I still feel like every day's every day's a step. There's peaks and valleys all over the place. And, um, but it took me about two years to figure it out, to be able to be like, okay, I have to stop, like, beating myself down because it's not doing anything for myself. And reach out, get help, start talking about everything that I need to do, and, and I did. And then I started recognizing that, Hey, you're 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 being you're being silly. You're, you're being silly by having that conversation by yourself. Stop having. Stop doing that. Start start talking with other people. Start figuring it out. So then tomorrow can be brighter. You know, and um, and that's and that's where it is. And it started with two years after that phone call and that one phone number from the aftermath of peer support coming, and um, yeah, and just reaching out. And uh, actually, wait, I I don't even think. I'm sorry, I didn't take the phone number down. See, so so this is what I'm talking about. So that so that night, I, I didn't even have that phone number. I actually had to reach out to to uh, um, to a coworker and an unbelievable great friend who was completely supportive the whole way. And uh, I don't know if he wants me to shout him out here, but but he, he it was great. And uh, he immediately, I was like, I I texted him. I said, Hey, I was like, do, do you remember that phone number of that guy from that thing two years ago? He's like, Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I have it. And then he sent it over to me and. I was like, all right, thanks, and and he knew something was wrong, and still he showed up at my house with a pizza, and uh, and I was like, yeah, hey, I was like, I just, I just, I just have to talk about this because I was like, it, it's something I just, I just keep, I can't, I'm, I'm sick of waking up in the morning and it just being the only thought, and then just keep thinking about like everything and regretting everything and just hoping like you know like things could have changed, and and I, I wasn't really living life, and um, and from there I that called that phone number and started getting into the pipeline and, and, and learning, learning a lot of valuable, valuable things down to the point that like that week I, I, I quit alcohol. I didn't even, and I, I didn't have an issue with like drinking or anything, but, um, I just stopped and I, I've been sober for the past two and a half years since, since that moment and, uh, Feel. and just living life and, and, and enjoying it, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm saddened by Alex's thing and I, I, I regret some things, but I definitely am not, there's no point. There's yeah. no point in bringing that negativity back into the world. Yeah. If uh, we can bring a positive thing out of all this, it's how to to get those officers out of that dark, dark, dark moment. Mm-hmm. And that dark, dark moment is, I'll, I'll key, key on it every single time, having a phone number. you got to have that 911 line. you got to have that connection to all these great resources that are everywhere. Yeah. You know, and, and they are everywhere. And there's, yeah. there's uh, tons of programs out yeah. there. And genuinely, to like checking in on each other. Um, Tom, you know, just saying, you know, are you okay? Maybe there was, you, you know, you're working together and you're in the department together and someone had a bad call last week or maybe multiple bad calls and maybe they're not showing any symptoms of, um, you know, trauma, right, Ex- uh, symptoms. But just saying, how are you doing? Looking someone in the eye and saying, are you okay? I'm here for you if you need me. Here's my number, my cell phone number, off whenever. Um, and, and it's just sort of letting someone know, you know, who who can I have as a person? Who can I trust? Who Who's my person that I'm going to reach out to? All of you have a person, and you all know who you would talk to. It might even not be even someone in your department. It might be even someone in a coffee shop. Um, so I'm just saying that there could be a person. It's just someone that you know can trust and it's, it's confidential, right? Which is also key. 
Um, I think a lot of you have fear that you don't want other people knowing your business. Um, as long as those lime rickies are on tap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lime rickies are always on tap for you, Ryan. Um, so, Justin, I just want to sort of hit on you a little bit. Um, you you have now become part of a peer support team. Can you share that with us? Like, what inspired you to go um, into going in that direction uh, within your department? Yeah, ex- um, you know, Alex is, is definitely a part of it. Um, you know, recognizing um, that, you know, I needed to be healthy myself, but mental health-wise, um, you know, I need to be um, that part of that support structure, part of that pipeline, um, because it does matter. Be that phone number, you mean? Well, <laughs> also be, be a part of that, that structure in place that, you know, um, someone can come to me confidentially. They can explain what's going on. And also that um, I can provide the information for, you know, signs or symptoms that they may be going through that they can recognize. Because I think that's a, a big thing um, that, you know, when someone's going through this, they also don't realize what they're going through. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Tony discussed, discussed a little bit of, um, and we all have uh, like a flattened uh, type of feeling. Uh, and in some ways, it helps us be that brave person day to day. But on other times, we don't feel what we need to feel. Um, and that's a, that's a strong thing to recognize and to say, hey, that is PTSD. You know, that is something that um, needs, you know, you need to um, get help with. Yeah. Um, and, and find, you know, what works for you. Um, just sort of hitting on that a little bit for our listeners who's listening and what you're saying is that I'm not feeling what I should be actually feeling. So basically saying I'm I'm not having any feelings. Yes. I'm stopping having any feelings at um, all. And I, I, I think the law first responders go through that, um, you know, because in some ways it is a shield to us. You know, we go to these, you know, horrific events or scenes and we're great at processing, you know, what we need to do. Um, but then each one of these scenes does take a, a little bit from you. Um, that um, sometimes you don't realize when you're there, you know, because uh, you're just trying to survive. Um, you know, I think about this a lot, you know, from my military experience. And so maybe I, I kind of went through this very young and very early. Um you know, and, and, you know, I went through a lot in the military. Um, and, you know, the, the discussion of, of suicide was something that was so common. Um, I, even this past um, two years ago, I lost a, a member uh, of, my, uh, of my unit um, who had gone through um, what I had went through. And he had come through such adversity. Um, he was homeless in the streets of Atlanta. He came from Puerto Rico and um, was in the military and, and, and came from an underprivileged family and had gone through so much. And, um, you know, I, I can understand uh, the PTSD aspect that he had gone through and how that affected him and how um, this all got warped kind of together. And kind of that event really made me 
um, say, hey, I need to you know, take part in, in, in being part of this peer support and this pipeline and um, you know, thinking about how I would have done something for him. Thank you for your service. I think um, I think that you're you're touching on another really uh, important and valid point about our culture and how trauma is processed. Right? It's not like just that we adapt; it's necessary for job performance. I mean, I know there's differences between police and fire, but when you think about and we've talked about this before on this podcast, like you go into a home, there's an overdose. There's children being neglected. There's just like all this type of stuff that you should have some kind of an emotional reaction to. But uh, in a way, um, that could impact duty performance, right? I'm here to give Nacan. I can't have a human moment with these children who are in horrible conditions right now because I got to give Nacan, whatever the duties are on that scene, right? So... Um, it's it's necessary to be good, to be effective uh, at the job, to sort of develop emotionally that way. But there's consequences to that, and and I think w- there was a lot of depth to what you were to, to what you were talking about when you get to a point in in recognizing the humanness in ourselves, because otherwise that backpack gets full, right? And and, and it's and it happens before we know it, and, and in a slightly different manner based on the jobs that we do. I mean, you could take an average shift with a with a fatal car accident, right? Or just pick anything that could happen on any day in any week and take somebody from a different line of work. Not that we're better and they're worse, or, but there are differences. If somebody is a school teacher or works in business or administration and they pull up and they see uh, what we see, when we go in the window at a, at, a, at a fatal traffic accident or some other bad scene, they're different in a big way. That takes over their perspective. They go home. They're telling their husband or wife, you're not going to, this is what happened. And it's, meanwhile, we could have two or three of those. And we go home and it's, uh, we, we have a flat affect about that. We probably are not going to mention it uh, for reasons that might not even make sense to us. And that's how we adapt and if we want to be well and stay well as an individual, as a culture, it's really important to understand, I think, that exact uh, that dynamic that you were hitting on. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of different uh, components that go into I mean, I, I think about that scenario that you give, and it's, you know, one aspect is, you know, you, you take your boots off and you leave them at the door, and that's where the work stays, you know, and you, you don't bring it in, into your family. Uh, but it really does come in with you. And it affects you. Um, yeah, there's other things that you know people may be going through that they might relate to. You know, and and it doesn't have to be uh, emotionless. It, it, you know, it could be um, being drained. You know, we we go through a lot of different things in our shift and or our work and whatever whatever that wherever it takes us. But at the end, you know, there's some people that they feel. Um, stuck and they go they go you know they go home um and they're, they they they're stuck onto the couch they're stuck wherever they are um and you know the, really that's you know that's that's who we need to look out for too i think when it comes to being stuck it's i feel like i've been there when i was stuck when 
it was early in my career and the emotional toll of the job was really hitting me from all sides trying to learn the job am i am i am i am i getting it am i being a good police officer and then the institutional stress was extremely high at that time cuz when i was brand new and i can remember being stuck and and I remember in the uh, police academy, they had us read The uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And that book talks about the chair. Oh, I absolutely had a chair. It was my couch. I, would, I was on the day shift at the time. And my shift, it was an eight-hour shift, but it felt like a 16-hour shift because of the intense scrutiny I was under being, being new. And it was excessive scrutiny. It was, goes back to the toxic work culture. And being scrutinized, being second-guessed. Well, don't you think you should have done this? Well, being new, you can't, you can't answer the way I would answer today. Well, if I thought it, that was the right thing to do, I would, don't you think I would have done it? Mm-hmm. But you have to just, yes, sir, no, sir, and just, just take, that, uh, take that verbal and emotional abuse. And that went on for a long time. And I can remember after my shifts, I would go home. I would walk in the door to my apartment completely physically and emotionally exhausted. I would be exhausted not from any sort of physical exertion, just from having to deal with that. For that. I was so completely exhausted. So I had the couch. It was an ugly yellow couch. I think I got it. I, think, I can still remember the couch because I spent so much time on that thing. I spent a lot of time. I would come home, and within half an hour of my shift ending, I would be asleep on that couch because I was so exhausted. And I spent a lot of time on that couch, never exercising never having any sort of healthy coping mechanism because I, I didn't even know. I had no idea what I was going through for a long time. It took many years for me to realize that I was, that it, it was, it was a very, very tough time from all that, all that stress, stress of the job, trying, like just the basic stress of the, of the police, the police culture, the police work, the stress of taking the calls, plus the, the administrative stress, institutional stress of, being called into the being called into the offices all the time, being called over the radio. I remember being on a traffic stop and getting called over the radio, and questioned about a report that I did over the radio while I'm on a traffic stop. And I'm just and I didn't even realize it at the time, but like it's ridiculous. But that's how much scrutiny we were under as as new officers, and it took its toll. Yeah, I think those those other things aside from being, you know stuck or drained um you know I, i've kind of come on an interesting time you know seeing different generations working and then um chasing a wheel you know uh whether it was uh their own insecurity regarding finance or whether it was gambling whether it was um you know even a, a work culture where they saw their you know the, how their you know their parents worked themselves into the ground. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, now coming in, it was, this is how it is set up for, for, for us. And, um, you know, I, I kind of see it now with, you know, generational work, how that's kind of shifted um, where no one's just chasing after something uh, or, yeah. You know, working a million shifts to provide for a family, you know, there's the opposite effect now where people are taking time for themselves and taking a piece of that back. 
but those individuals are still out there that need that help. That need to recognize that uh, you know they're not either either they're not financially secure because they've gone through so many traumatic events that they just can't piece together how to even. I mean, at a certain point, I mean, you know, there, there's there are certain things that you know we we can do in our job, but then when you ask us to run a household. Mm. Um, <laughs> everything falls apart. Yeah, you know, and it, it's funny because <laughs> yeah, we're the it most <laughs> we're the most dependable people um, to the people we serve. Um, but then the people that need us the most at home don't get that piece. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and, and that's why it's such it's so important. Like when you guys, you know, hide things or don't share or don't seek the help and resources that. Um, that phone call, make that phone call, right? If you don't make that phone call, not only are you going through what you're going through, but your family are also going through that with you and your children and your your parents or whoever or whoever loves you, right, around you. Um, they see it too. And, um, and, and if you think again, like I'm also saying this for the listeners out there, um, you know, if you're struggling and, and you're not making a call and, and you just feel that you're changed or you're changing or you're just something that's different about you. Um, your family are noticing it too. They just don't know how to to put it to you or, or what's wrong. They just probably also think that you're mad at them and, and, and that type of way and coming out in that sort of a way. But also you just when you brought in you know, finance, I mean, if someone is going through... Um, you know, struggling um, emotionally. Um, the last thing I think that is on their mind is paying that car payment or, or paying that bill. And then that manifests into other things. And, and then it just all builds into other overwhelming um, situations. And we talked to Tom. We had Tom in a while ago. Tom is, um, also runs a, an organization called Cops for Cops um, Boston. Um, well, for services, for financial services, for first responders. Um, and so he's also going to be able to help um, you if you are in any difficulty. We can connect you with Tom um, and, and been able to help you walk you through maybe some situations and, and help you get right on the on the right path of figuring things out in your life out that way financially. Um, I just want to start to get into it a little bit with you guys. Before we do, Linda, can I... Yeah, yeah. When we mentioned the, uh, the family, your mm-hmm. family definitely carries the emotional impact of these traumatic events sure for sure when the the 2018 was a was a tough year for me because as alex and then i went to the academy with mike chesna and i think this was after the loss of mike that my sister was staying with me for a short time and i can remember coming home and i was out somewhere i don't remember where i was but i remember coming home and i was just very very upset and my sister was staying with me at the time, and I remember she said to me, I just want to support you. How can I support you? And I said, I don't know. Just all I, I, does, I don't know what you can say. I don't even know what I would say. You're, you're here. You're, you're there for me. That's all, I, that's all that matters to me. Mm-hmm. So your family do notice. Oh, they definitely do. Yes, they sure do. Um, five years anniversary coming up on, on October 29th. And um, 
I just want to ask you guys, um, m- uh, some of you have left the department, right? Tom, you're in Brockton now, right? And um, Tommy, you're you're in Weymouth now, right? And um, Justin, you're still there in, in Abington. Ryan, you're still there in Abington. Well, you left and you came back again. Um, so I want to ask you guys, even regardless, um, how are you all guys, how are you, how are you doing? How are you? I want to look you all in the eye and, and, and say to you, how are you all doing today? Once ago. I mean, I think everybody says they're doing good, but you know, there's peaks and valleys. That's that's how I always try try to respond. You know, yeah, and peaks and valleys. We have our days. We have our not so good days. You know, yeah. and that's that's human. That's human. The human life. Yeah. You know? So don't um, it's when all you about how you respond to it. Yeah. So how when you when you when you have those valley days, um, you know, do you feel that you have the tools and resources to be able to, you know, um, tap into those when you need them? Yeah, yeah, to absolutely. get through a day. Absolutely, and that's that's what's great is then you're able to make that climb and you don't have to do it alone. So yes, you absolutely. Get right back up to that peak and you know try to. It's always about trying to stay balanced, and if you're trying to shoot for that balanced life, you're 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 um you're gonna get to the point where you're you're feeling like every day's a uh, a valley you know what i'm saying because yeah. you're like oh yes I, why why can't this be like this why can't this be like that and like mm-hmm. i said that's living regret and i feel like i feel like uh you're never going to make that climb up you know mm-hmm. there's plenty of people out there and support to be able to uh get you out of whatever place you are but, yeah um mm. today yeah i'm doing good i'm i'm i feel like i'm in a much better place than i am i sitting here today with my closest friends talking about a really sad moment in all of our lives. And, uh, and I wouldn't have pictured myself here ever doing this. And, mm-hmm. um, this is great, you know, yeah. and hopefully this, this talk gets out to somebody and maybe flips that little light switch on to go like, Oh, that's me. You know, I, I, I know what he's talking about. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see so myself I in those it, guys, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and if you, if we can, be the examples then then you know maybe something positive came from this absolutely for sure anyone else want to chime in i think for me um my wife always tells me and i have a tendency to always put myself last no matter what um you know so if it's you know putting her her first or putting my my daughter first or you know my emotional well-being or physical well-being has always been like basically the last thing I'm good. I can handle it myself. I'll be able to take care of this like X, Y, and Z. But obviously with a, you know, demanding job, uh, like law enforcement and everything, uh, or it's military or firefighters, whatever, first responders, um, you know, you carry a lot of, you know, like you said, you know, your backpack gets heavy and everything like that. Um, you know, and I had always done like physical fitness for, the military or, you know, you always had to keep running if you were like in law enforcement, all that stuff. But then it like stops once you're on the job because you're doing shift work, you're not taking care of yourself. And like the golden arches are over in Rockland. And if I just sneak over the line and get me a Big Mac, like this will be all right. And then I can, <laughs> then I can uh, you know, come back on shift. But, um, <laughs> but there was always that element of like, again, you're the f- first responder, you're going into those houses, you're you know, you're going through the door and it doesn't matter like what's behind that door because it's your, 
that's you who's going in. Like, that's your job. So you have a tendency to always kind of um, have that attitude in absolutely everything. We walked into here, and everybody's checking out exits and who's around the corner and who's out the window. And yep, that. they were. And um, so I had kind of made a promise to myself to uh, never live in a non-post, never live in a, uh, in a non-gym world. Uh, for me, and that's how I can compartmentalize. It's how I can relieve stress and all that stuff. Um, and I first started doing it just because I um, to start like lifting weights and everything like that. Uh, I just started to do that just because it made me feel better. And like then later on, I was like, oh wow, I can actually see differences in my body. I I'm sleeping better. I'm you know um, taking care of myself a little bit more. So um, yeah, for me, it was to find that resource whatever it is that outlet to be able to like uh leave everything at at the door and just kind of like take care of yourself and have a moment for yourself you know i know tom for a while was doing like he was telling me about he'd read books he'd he'd do meditation he'd do all this types of stuff and i would like you know try to like find different um you know reasons and how to like uh express myself and all that stuff so for me it was um that's how i have whether it's an hour a day or whatever it is um, focus on yourself. Yeah. Give yourself some time. I love that. Justin? You know, <coughs> I didn't think I'd come in here to, to say this, um, you know, but, you know, discussing what we have been discussing, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm not okay, but I know that uh, that's okay um, to feel that, um, especially with, the loss and the anniversary coming up of such a great friend. Um, I think that um, taking care of myself and um, you know going through what I need to do um, is important. Um, you know whatever you know whatever works. Uh, you know whether it's a car ride that's quiet for five minutes that I get and find some zen. Um, you know, it might, might be strange, uh, to do yoga, but that's okay. <laughs> Meditation does work. Um, if you have the mind for it, um, definitely agree with you. It definitely works. You Clearing know, your mind. Absolutely. There are just certain things that you find that will work, um, to bring you back, um, to being okay. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I relied on was coming to this cafe thank you you know Justin that takes a lot right a brave courage um, for someone to come out in a group right and openly say you know what I didn't realise that I was going to come in here and say that tonight but I'm not okay and uh, I, ju- I just want to stop talking for a minute and give this guy a hug for a minute so just yeah I mean stigmas come up a few times and, and I think that's that's another uh, another way of overcoming it is recognising that Everybody does experience struggle, and it is okay to to not be okay. When we think uh, that we have to avoid saying that, or, or even accepting it, or admitting it to ourselves, um, you know that that sort of adds adds to the stigma. So, um, strong work, man. Strong work. I just want to um, start to say to you guys, um, you know, you're all in law enforcement or where, right? Um, 
So, and it's something that we always try to ask at the, you know, coming to the end of, of a, a podcast or a, a conversation. Um, if there was something, um, and I, I, I want to go into this, and, and the reason why I, I, I ask it a lot, especially with um, you know, police officers, um, <coughs> there is still stigma there, right? And, 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 you know, the word stigma means different things to, to a lot of different people. Um, with within departments or in some departments are great, right? And as you said, Tom, your experience in your department and that's absolutely wonderful. So shout out to Brockton and maybe other agencies should reach out to your department if you're feeling really feeling that um, from them and say, what's really working in your department that are making your men and women believe? And, and I'd love departments to reach out to what's working well um, in that department in Brockton that's not going so well in ours. Um, but there is a stigma um, still because the numbers of first responder suicide um, is still um, astronomical. Um, so it means that there still is a huge crisis um, among first response, especially in, in law enforcement um, with suicide, um, even year to date, right this year. Um, it's, it's, it's a number one killer for first responders. Um, especially for police officers, firemen, um, more um, than in the line of duty death. Um, suicide, dying by their own hands because they feel pain. Um, and I don't believe that any of these men or women um, who die by their own hands really want to die. I, re- I really do believe that. They don't want to die. They just want to end the pain that they are going through and they can't see any way out of it and I really believe that um so having said that um if there was things now I have to say Abington I I have to give a shout out to Abington so I also have to bring um the administration or um you know what you guys were talking about earlier on you know the initial um lack of support, so to speak, from the administration for you guys um, after the death of Alex within the department. Um, that administration has, is not there anymore. Um, we have a new, I would say, leader. Um, he is a leader within your department. Um, I'm very, very, very supportive um, of mental wellness um, within your department um, and in supporting the men and women who need it. Um, with no ridicule, no taking your gun away, or no fear of losing your job. Let's get in. He said it. We've had your chief, um, and and interviewed him, and you know I really believe that this man is going to um, gain your trust in you believing that he is there for you and he is going to support you in whatever you need. And that you can knock on his door and say, I'm not well. Um, I'm not feeling good after this. I need to get some help. And you'll be offered the resources from that. So I, I wanna I wanna just start to say that. But having said that, what do you think that what you see every day and within departments, if you were in any position to make a change within a department? police agency first response in general and you would say this this could work 
what would you what would you like to see happen? Just the the greatest cause of stress. I I I've got my master's degree last year and I wrote my master's thesis on toxic work cultures because we've all had so much hands-on experience about that. I I probably could have written the paper without using a single scholarly source. But that's the greatest cause of stress, and that's been documented for decades. Police work and all of the lines of work, the greatest cause of stress for police officers is not the responding to the calls. It's the institutional stress. It's the cultural stress. It's the administration. And I can, I can tell you just from my, my experiences, and I'm sure everybody here agrees that that's the greatest cause of the stress. And part of my paper was on what are the possible solutions, and that's for the leaders in policing to understand that, to recognize that, and to respond to that. Is the, the stress is coming from the top, and it's going down. It's, it's the, the, toxic, the toxic culture, the... The unfair treatment, the micromanagement, the um, the uh, the um, unequal treatment, all the all the different factors that go in, and either intentionally or unintentionally, the poor treatment that officers get from management. Like I'm sure there are many leaders out there in the police world that have the best intentions, but for whatever reason, come across as either toxic or, or in some way not 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 being the leader that the uh, the officer needs that the officers need I think um, I think those those two points um, you know speaking with uh, with Ryan and um, you know I read an article uh, from uh, it's a FBI bulletin puts out um, every month uh, and one that one article that rang with me was called moral injury and it's it's not injury from going into traumatic events it's uh you know injuries that occur from decisions uh that are made or uh treatment or um you know in whatever the case is out, um that is testing and and, and inte- your own integrity or your own moral values or your own um ethics um, you know, if, if you believe so strongly in something, you know, such as doing the right thing and a decision goes against that, that is of a higher authority that creates a moral injury. Um, and you know, that, that article really, really details that. Um, you know, the second thing I would say that, you know, is helpful is taking, uh, someone out of the environment, uh, like to the onsite academy, um, because we're in an environment that's chaos, taking them outside that environment, giving them the time to heal, and then putting them back in when they're ready. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, if someone is struggling, you mean, Justin? If someone is struggling and and um, and they need a resource or a help, right? Sometimes um, just as simple being able to go and talk to, like what um, Ryan also said, right? And Tony said, like talking to a therapist who's culturally competent 
Um, I hear that word all the time, especially in, in um, you know, first response, um, to be able to talk to someone who's, who, who understands and gets it, right? And, and, then, and then there might be a little bit more of a need where they might need to, to go for a few days and be able to um, figure some, some stuff, extra stuff out, right? Need a little bit of extra help. And, and those resources are out there. There's so many resources out there. Um, so don't think there's not. And, and if you are a person out there listening who is maybe thinking or ro- trolling around in your head what you hear these guys openly have a conversation about um, is, is that you are not alone, right? You're not the only one that is going through this. Um, if you're in a, a, a job that is in first response, you're, you're going to experience some um, stress um, and you might be able to handle it. And then there might be just that one call that just s- triggered something. And um, and you might need them help recognize that. I hope you can recognize it in yourself um, so that you can actively... I heard Tom saying earlier on, you know, there was for a while there you weren't actively participating in your own life. Um, and now you are um, because you found a way. You found a way to be able to deal with that st- type of stuff and got the help that you needed. And, and thank you for doing that. Um, and being brave enough and, and courageous enough to say, hey, have you got make that call and say, have you got that phone number that we that we, we talked about a while ago? You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's you're a leader when you do that, and you're brave and you're courageous when you do that, and you take up that phone and you call someone and say, can I have that phone number? Because I wanna I wanna be healthy and I wanna heal. Um, so yeah, Justin, starting on a healing journey is 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 the way to go think if there was a way that I could do or implement some sort of change is um, when I was the commander of a National Guard unit for 130 plus uh, military police um, soldiers, uh, the first time I took command, um, I wanted to know, I had previously been in the unit, but I didn't know what their experiences were uh, since I had left. So first thing I did would, when I came in was I... Um, I instituted a command climate survey, which is basically a, um, you know, anonymous assessment survey that you can send out through all your troops. And that kind of gives them an open forum to, you know, anonymously input anything that is wrong with their environment, whether it's racism or sexual harassment, sexual assaults, um, any type of, um, you know, suicide or mental health issues or anything like that. It kind of gives them a forum to express themselves without having the fear of retaliation against them or having a stigma set up against them or saying that, hey, like this person um, is unfit for the job because we gotta, they got to drop their weapon and, and then not come back to it. So um, I think there are resources out there. If you're a senior leader um, at a law enforcement organization or a you know fire department or something like that, and you're unaware if I'm having those types of problems. And the problem is, is you got to have a good leader in there to not be afraid of looking at those answers because I wanted to read through every single, you know, result of that to make sure that I didn't have any soldiers that were in danger of, of, of anything, you know, of the subjects I was just talking about. So there is a way that, you know, departments can get a overall assessment just of what their overall culture is like just to kind of get a feel for it. Um, I think it just takes the leadership uh, of the individual in order to institute that. And it's a very simple way to just get an overall feel for 
what your, the culture of your department is like? Like a pulse check. Exactly. Do we have anything else that we want to cover? Does anybody have any burning desires, anything they think is relevant to the conversation that they want to mention that we didn't kind of come across naturally? I just want to mention that I am very sorry for your loss uh, and for the purpose of our, our getting together. I'm sorry to you, Miss Linda, and to your family for your loss. Um, let it not be in vain. I think that's um, also, I just want to follow up on, on what Jay just said. You know, thank you all for coming in. Um, wanting to participate um, in, a, in a tribute to Alex, but really it's a tribute to you guys also. Um, I know we we're, it's Alex's anniversary, and he would want this to be about you, um, your healing, your healing journey. Um, and he wouldn't want you to be struggling or to not be okay, right? To not be not okay. He would want you to be okay. So from him, coming from my mouth, is that if you are not feeling okay, seek help. Get well. Start on a healing journey. You'll be better for it, and everyone around you will be better for it too. Okay? Yeah, come in the cafe. <laughs> Come in the cafe and have a chat with me, for sure. Coming from all of us, too, we want to thank you guys for what you're doing. This is, this is a great thing that you put it on, you know. So it's very important, and I'm, sh I'm sure it's going to reach out to, you know, we might not see the results, but they'll, they'll be there. They'll yeah. definitely be there. Yeah, and, and I've always said it, um, Tom, is that if one person, and I've said it to Jay many times, that um, if, if, if one person listens to this, podcast for each episode or any episode or just tunes in for the first time listening to your interview um and it helps them pick up a phone well and alex's death will not be in vain um and you know we can bring purpose to his loss and make it easier for first responders to be able to seek help without shame or without feeling any shame of it there's no shame let's ditch that shame Let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of that stigma. Let's get rid of feeling bad because you're feeling bad. Go and seek help. And like any any injury, any physical injury, like if I if I break an ankle or tear a tendon, it's gonna take it's gonna take time to heal. It's gonna take doctor's visits. It's gonna take rehabilitation, and it's the same thing with an emotional injury. It's it's something I've I've been recovering from for years and I'm still recovering and, and I'm still processing dealing doing the emotional rehabilitation like I would do any sort of physical rehabilitation mm -hmm. and it's an ongoing process and recognizing the injury that took a lot of time seeking the appropriate help took time and then the recovery processing healing that took a long time yeah absolutely for sure and I, I think that even, you know, every, every conversation that myself and Jay have, because we talk emotional wellness all the time. I mean, that's our conversation, right, when we, when we talk. Um, and, and the thing is, is that um, every interview, I don't know where, if it's the same feeling for you, Jay, but, but every interview that I'm privileged to um, participate in um, and be able to sit amongst you first responders, brave men and women who are, 
our community's heroes um, to to just start to say every interview that I'm privileged to participate in is also it's like therapy for me uh, it also helps me heal and um, and I just want to thank you guys for being another part of, of my healing journey so thank you for coming in tonight and um, never forgetting his name always saying his name and I know you do um, and continue to say his name um, because he'll forever be a really really good part of you um, and I hope that you'll always remember that Thank you. We'll always be part of Coco's crew. Today we had five courageous men join us. They happened to be police officers, and they wanted to pay tribute to their friend, their peer, to one of their own. They want us to know that they will always say his name and remember Alex by honoring how he lived, not by how he died. During the conversation, it became clear to us that sharing with each other how Alex's loss had impacted each one of them individually is something they may not have done until now, in a peer-to-peer setting, in a place where healing can begin. If you're a first responder whose life is going well, we hope that continues. Still, it's a good idea to have someone's phone number that you can reach out to if difficult calls begin to overwhelm. Strive for wellness, and please, remember to check on your people. This episode is dedicated to Sergeant Alex Kokoros as he lived and to those that love him. Till next time. Till next time.